Thanks to the wonderful folks at Anchor.fm. Coming to you almost live from the Tom Reads Your Story studios in New York, this is Tom Reads Your Story. Join voice actor Tom Zania as he reads from articles, social media, past audiobooks, and other spoken word projects. And now, here's the host of Tom Reads Your Story, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. Thank you very much for that wonderful introduction, Mr. Announcer, as always. This is Tom Zania, and you have reached Tom Reads Your Story. This is for all of you lovers of the spoken word, whether it be poetry, novels, or whatever. We are glad you're here. Thanks very much for stopping by. Today, you know what? I I know you're all tired of me and everyone else talking about Trump all the time, constantly. It's like we're counting the seconds until January 20th. But something occurred to me the other day. I watched something from Netflix, and I'm going to tell you more about it right after this. Archie Johnson thought he was prepared to meet his death in the electric chair. The sentence had been read. He had had his last meal, and the prison chaplain had asked God to have mercy on his soul. Then, just as they were strapping him into the chair, he suddenly realized there were a few things he wanted to do before he left this earth. This is Archie's story. Join two masters of the old-fashioned short story, with writing by John Isaac Jones and narration by Tom Zania. Going Home by John Isaac Jones. Listen to this great book from Audible.com. Whether it's grilling, smoking, or baking, the Silverback Wood Pellet Grill delivers the delicious natural flavor of a wood-fired meal. Silverback boasts a 20-pound hopper and those all-day smokes, a high and low safety shutoff, and precision meat thermometer. Grilla Grills. More grill, less money. Find out more at grillagrills.com. And we are back. So here's what happened. I was going through Netflix, as I have been, and many have been during this pandemic, because there's not much else to do. Uh, And I found something I really wanted to learn about. It, It wasn't a documentary. It was kind of a series, like a limited series that looked like something I'd want to binge on. And I did. It was Leah Remini talking about her experience in Scientology. And also she had a, like a co-host with her and she had people that uh, were uh, sort of like witnesses uh, to all of this because they went through the same thing. And it was, it was incredible is she just blew the whole horribleness of Scientology just right out. And it was about the physical abuse, the mental abuse, 
the emotional abuse, and the flat-out extortion of money. That's what occurred to me the most. And uh, people would give up thousands and thousands of dollars at a time. We're talking about parishioners. We're not talking about people high up in the uh, in in the game. We're talking about people that were just regular working class folks giving up hundreds of thousands of dollars, $40,000 here, $20,000 there. And it's all because this ridiculous excuse for a religion, Scientology, basically buys all of these properties, these buildings, and puts their name on it. And these buildings that they buy all over the place, all over the country, are empty. They don't represent anything. There's nobody in there. Okay? And these people have to give all of this money to buy up all these places. And, of course, they can't say anything bad about it because then they get in all sorts of trouble and have to pay more money. It's flat-out extortion. So I, I watched this entire series, a very, very well-done series on Netflix. And um, I went through all the different episodes. And after I, I finished it, it occurred to me, Donald Trump is doing the same thing, pretty much. He has taken out from all of his crazy followers who insist that he's so wonderful. He has taken out, supposedly, and I think this is true, $200 million, money that these people will never see again, ever, and that he's going to keep for his own uses, whether they be political or not political. And, and I thought to myself, you know, this is a nightmare. We, I mean, we went through the nightmare of this guy for four years, and now this is like the frosting on the cake. It's just so incredible that we have very politely bent over backwards for this guy, especially his Republican minions who just think he's wonderful, who obviously are, are looking for some political uh, payback later on. But uh, they're not going to see it. These lawyers, that he, this whole team of lawyers that he's hired, I can't wait to see the look on their faces when no money shows up for their services. And it's just incredible. Today I saw him trying to answer a question uh, from a reporter about something. I can't remember what it was. But he he went off the beaten path trying to answer this and basically talked about how he was robbed of being president. He went on for five or ten minutes about this, which had nothing to do with the question that was asked of him. Nothing. Uh I, I try to tell myself, you know, don't get burned up over this. This is all finished. Uh, January will come and we'll have a new president. Um, and, and I honestly, I don't know uh, that I'm expecting anything great from Joe Biden. I like him. 
Uh, but we shall soon see. You know, he's got to deal with Mitch McConnell. He's got to deal with uh, a lot of people that may not want to work with him. But still, it's not Donald Trump. It's just not. And I'm so thankful for that. And I suspect many of you are as well. And if you're not, what's the matter with you? What is it about this guy that you think is so almost downright holy about him? Uh, he's not who you think he is. And and you know why that is? And that brings this into my mind. Most of the people that think he's so great are not from New York. New Yorkers, long, even long before I moved here, New Yorkers used to see him on the front page of the Daily News every day with different women, women here, women there, another divorce coming up. This guy is not a leader. He never was. And and the fact that you go around saying, well, he's not a politician, and that's why I like him. Oh, boy, something is definitely wrong with you and your friends, if that's the way you feel. And uh, I don't know. I'm tired of all the threats to people that you guys are making. I'm tired of the threats that Donald Trump makes to people, whatever they may be. And he runs the gamut of threats. And uh, fine, go ahead, you know, waste more money on these court cases, none of which he's won. But I'm only looking uh, towards uh, the end uh, of this guy's service to America, which is pretty much zero. It's all been about him, folks. None of this is about our country. None of this is about patriotism. None of it. And believe me, believe me, if any network is dumb enough to want to go and inter uh, interview this guy after he leaves the White House, I am very much hoping that we're not going to be polite to him this time. You shouldn't be polite to him now. I wish somebody would develop a spine, especially in the Democratic Party, to ask the questions that we've been aching to ask. And you know what those are. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play uh, something that I played before. It's a section from a book that I was given uh, by a friend called Fire and Fury. And uh, by, uh, what's his name? Wolf, David Wolf, I think is his name. His name. And uh, I've played it before. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've played it before, but I want to play it again. And um, it's the same chapter, but, you know, in case you forgot it, um, we'll listen to that. And the thing of it is, uh, it is the chapter that I played before. I am sort of searching for where the file has went. It's got to be in another folder somewhere that I'm not sure of. Uh, but we'll do we'll do another part later on. And um, I'll be back right after this. The 2014 E-Class. A car that can actually see like a human, using stereoscopic cameras, and even stop itself if it has to. The technology may be hard to imagine, 
but why you would want it is not. The 2014 E-Class. It doesn't just see the future. It is the future. And we are back. And I, I have to apologize before I begin again. Uh, the gentleman's name who wrote this is Michael Wolf. And I always, for some reason, think it's David Wolf, but it, it is not. It's Michael. So I'm going to play now the section from Fire and Fury, which is the first book uh, about how awful Trump and his sense of leadership is. It's the whole White House is just a mess, and it's not just him, but it's mostly him. And um, before you hear the book start, you're going to hear a little bit about Michael Wolff, and it'll go right into uh, the book Fire and Fury. Here it is. Michael Wolff is an American author, essayist, journalist, and a columnist and contributor to USA Today, The Hollywood Reporter, and the UK edition of GQ. He has received two National Magazine Awards, a Mirror Award, and has authored seven books, including Burn Rate, about his own dot-com company, and The Man Who Owns the News, a biography of Rupert Murdoch. He co-founded the news aggregation website Newser and is a former editor of Adweek. In January 2018, Wolf's book Fire and Fury, Inside the Trump White House, was published containing unflattering descriptions of behavior by U.S. President Donald Trump, chaotic interactions among the White House senior staff, and derogatory comments about the Trump family by former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon. After being released on January 5th, the book quickly became a New York Times number one bestseller. Chapter 1. Election Day. On the afternoon of November 8, 2016, Kellyanne Conway, Donald Trump's campaign manager and a central, indeed starring, personality of Trump world, settled into her glass office at Trump Tower. Right up until the last weeks of the race, the Trump campaign headquarters had remained a listless place. All that seemed to distinguish it from a corporate back office were a few posters with right-wing slogans. Conway now was in a remarkably buoyant mood, considering she was about to experience a resounding, if not cataclysmic, defeat. Donald Trump would lose the election, of this she was sure, but he would quite possibly hold the defeat to under six points. That was a substantial victory. As for the looming defeat itself, she shrugged it off. It was Wright's Priebus's fault, not hers. She had spent a good part of the day calling friends and allies in the political world and blaming Priebus. Now, she briefed some of the television producers and anchors with whom she'd built strong relationships and with whom, actively interviewing in the last few weeks, she was hoping to land a permanent on-air job after the election. She carefully courted many of them since joining the Trump campaign in mid-August and becoming the campaign's reliably combative voice and, with her spasmodic smiles and strange combination of and imperturbability, a telegenic face. Beyond all of the other horrible blunders of the campaign, the real problem, she said, 
was the devil they couldn't control. The Republican National Committee, which was run by Priebus, his sidekick, 32-year-old Katie Walsh, and their flack, Sean Spicer. Instead of being all in, the RNC, ultimately the tool of the Republican establishment, had been hedging its bets ever since Trump won the nomination in early summer. When Trump needed the push, the push just wasn't there. That was the first part of Conway's spin. The other part was that, despite everything, the campaign had really clawed its way back from the abyss. A severely undersourced team with, practically speaking, the worst candidate in modern political history. Conway offered either an eye-rolling pantomime whenever Trump's name was mentioned, or a dead stare, had actually done extraordinarily well. Conway, who had never been involved in a national campaign, and who, before Trump, ran a small-time, down-ballot polling firm, understood full well that, post-campaign, she would now be one of the leading conservative voices on cable news. In fact, one of the Trump campaign pollsters, John McLaughlin, had begun to suggest within the past week or so that some key state numbers, heretofore dismal, might actually be changing to Trump's advantage. But neither Conway nor Trump himself, nor his son-in-law Jared Kushner, the effective head of the campaign, or the designated family mentor of it, wavered in their certainty. Their unexpected adventure would soon be over. Only Steve Bannon, in his odd man view, insisted the numbers would break in their favor. But this being Bannon's view, Crazy Steve, it was quite the opposite of being a reassuring one. Almost everybody in the campaign, still an extremely small outfit, thought of themselves as a clear-eyed team, as realistic about their prospects as perhaps any in politics. The unspoken agreement among them, not only would Donald Trump not be president, he should probably not be. Conveniently, the former conviction meant nobody had to deal with the latter issue. As the campaign came to an end, Trump himself was sanguine. He had survived the release of the Billy Bush tape when, in the uproar that followed, the RNC had had the gall to pressure him to quit the race. FBI Director James Comey, having bizarrely hung Hillary out to dry by saying he was reopening the investigation into her emails 11 days before the election, had helped avert a total Clinton landslide. I can be the most famous man in the world, Trump told his on-again, off-again side, Sam Nunberg, at the outset of the campaign. But do you want to be president? Nunberg asked, a qualitatively different question than the usual existential candidate test. Why do you want to be president? Nunberg did not get an answer. The point was, there didn't need to be an answer because he wasn't going to be president. Trump's longtime friend, Roger Ailes, liked to say, if you wanted a career in television, then run for president. Now, president, encouraged by Ailes, was floating rumors about a Trump network. It was a great future. He would come out of this campaign, Trump assured Ailes, with a far more powerful brand and untold opportunities. 
This is bigger than I ever dreamed of, he told Ailes in a conversation a week before the election. I don't think about losing because it isn't losing. We've totally won. What's more, he was already laying down his public response to losing the election. It was stolen. Donald Trump and his tiny band of campaign warriors were ready to lose with fire and fury. They were not ready to win. In politics, somebody has to lose, but invariably, everybody thinks they can win. And you probably can't win unless you believe that you will win, except in the Trump campaign. The motif for Trump about his own campaign was how crappy it was and how everybody involved in it was a loser. He was equally convinced that the Clinton people were brilliant winners. They've got the best and we've got the worst, he frequently said. Time spent with Trump on the campaign plane was often an epic dissing experience. Everybody around him was an idiot. Corey Lewandowski, who served as Trump's first more or less official campaign manager, was often berated by the candidate. For months, Trump called him the worst, and in June 2016, he was finally fired. Ever after, Trump proclaimed his campaign doomed without Lewandowski. We're all losers, he would say. All our guys are terrible. Nobody knows what they're doing. Wish Corey was back. Trump quickly soured on his second campaign manager, Paul Manafort, as well. By August, trailing Clinton by 12 to 17 points and facing a daily firestorm of eviscerating press, Trump couldn't conjure even a far-fetched scenario for achieving an electoral victory. At this dire moment, Trump, in some essential sense, sold his losing campaign. The right-wing billionaire Bob Mercer, a Ted Cruz backer, had shifted his support to Trump with a $5 million infusion. Believing the campaign was cratering, Mercer and his daughter, Rebecca, took a helicopter from their Long Island estate out to a scheduled fundraiser, with other potential donors bailing by the second at New York Jets owner and Johnson & Johnson heir Woody Johnson's summer house in the Hamptons. Trump had no real relationship with either father or daughter. He'd had only a few conversations with Bob Mercer, who mostly talked in monosyllables. Rebecca Mercer's entire history with Trump consisted of a selfie taken with him at Trump Tower. But when the Mercers presented their plan to take over the campaign and install their lieutenants, Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway, Trump didn't resist. He only expressed vast incomprehension about why anyone would want to do that. This thing, he told the Mercers, is so fucked up. By every meaningful indicator, something greater than even a sense of doom shadowed what Steve Bannon called the Broke Dick campaign, a sense of structural impossibility. The candidate who billed himself as a billionaire, ten times over, refused even to invest his own money in it. Bannon told Jared Kushner, who, when Bannon signed on to the campaign, had been off with his wife on a holiday in Croatia with Trump enemy David Geffen, that, after the first debate in September, they would need an additional $50 million to cover them until Election Day. No way! He'll get $50 million unless we can guarantee him victory, said a clear-eyed Kushner. $25 million, prodded Bannon. 
If we can say victory is more than likely. In the end, the best Trump would do is loan the campaign $10 million, provided he got it back as soon as they could raise other money. Steve Mnuchin, then the campaign's finance chairman, came to collect the loan with the wire instructions ready to go, so Trump couldn't conveniently forget to send the money. There was, in fact, no real campaign because there was no real organization, or at best, only a uniquely dysfunctional one. Roger Stone, the early de facto campaign manager, quit or was fired by Trump, with each man publicly claiming he had slapped down the other. Sam Nunberg, a Trump aide who had worked for Stone, was noisily ousted by Lewandowski, and then Trump exponentially increased the public dirty clothes washing by suing Nunberg. Lewandowski and Hope Hicks, the PR aide put on the campaign by Ivanka Trump, had an affair that ended in a public fight on the street, an incident cited by Nunberg in his response to Trump's suit. The campaign, on its face, was not designed to win anything. Even as Trump eliminated the 16 other Republican candidates, however far-fetched that might have seemed, it did not make the ultimate goal of winning the presidency any less preposterous. And if, during the fall, winning seemed slightly more plausible, that evaporated with the Billy Bush affair. I'm automatically attracted to beautiful, I just start kissing them, Trump told the NBC host Billy Bush on an open mic amid the ongoing national debate about sexual harassment. It's like a magnet. Just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the pussy. You can do anything. It was an operatic unraveling. So mortifying was this development that when Rents Priebus, the RNC head, was called to New York from Washington for an emergency meeting at Trump Tower, he couldn't bring himself to leave Penn Station. It took two hours for the Trump team to coax him across town. Bro, said a desperate Bannon, cajoling Priebus on the phone. I may never see you again after today, but you gotta come to this building and you gotta walk through the front door. The silver lining of Melania Trump had to endure after the Billy Bush tape was that now there was no way her husband could become president. Donald Trump's marriage was perplexing to almost everybody around him. Or it was, anyway, for those without private jets and many homes. He and Melania spent relatively little time together. They could go days at a time without contact, even when they were both in Trump Tower. Often, she did not know where he was, or take much notice of that fact. Her husband moved between residences as he would move between rooms. Along with knowing little about his whereabouts, she knew little about his business and took, at best, modest interest in it. An absentee father for his first four children, Trump was even more absent for his fifth, Baron, his son with Melania. Now, on his third marriage, he told friends he thought he had finally perfected the art. Live and let live. Do your own thing. He was a notorious womanizer, and during the campaign became possibly the world's most famous masher. While nobody would ever say Trump was sensitive when it came to women, he had many views about how to get along with them, including a theory he discussed with friends about how the more years between an older man and a younger woman, 
the less the younger woman took an older man's cheating personally. Still, the notion that this was a marriage in name only was far from true. He spoke of Melania frequently when she wasn't there. He admired her looks, often awkwardly for her, in the presence of others. She was, he told people proudly and without irony, a trophy wife. And while he may not have quite shared his life with her, he gladly shared the spoils of it. A happy wife is a happy life, he said, echoing a popular rich man truism. He also sought Melania's approval. He sought the approval of all women around him who were wise to give it. In 2014, when he first seriously began to consider running for president, Melania was one of the few who thought it was possible he could win. It was a punchline for his daughter Ivanka, who had carefully distanced herself from the campaign. With a never-too-hidden distaste for her stepmother, Ivanka would say to friends, all you have to know about Melania is that she thinks if he runs, he'll certainly win. But the prospect of her husband's actually becoming president was, for Melania, a horrifying one. She believed it would destroy her carefully sheltered life, one sheltered not inconsiderably from the extended Trump family, which was almost entirely focused on her young son. Don't put the cart before the horse, her amused husband said, even as he spent every day on the campaign trail, dominating the news, but her terror and torment mounted. There was a whisper campaign about her, cruel and comical in its insinuations, going on in Manhattan, which friends told her about. Her modeling career was under close scrutiny. In Slovenia, where she grew up, a celebrity magazine, Susie, put the rumors about her into print after Trump got the nomination. Then, with a sickening taste of what might be ahead, the Daily Mail blew the story across the world. The New York Post got its hands on outtakes from a nude photo shoot that Melania had done early in her modeling career, a leak that everybody other than Melania assumed could be traced back to Trump himself. Inconsolable, she confronted her husband. Is this the future? She told him she wouldn't be able to take it. Trump responded in this fashion. We'll sue, and set her up with lawyers who successfully did just that. But he was very contrite, too. Just a little longer, he told her. It would all be over in November. He offered his wife a solemn guarantee. There was simply no way he would win. And even for a chronically, he would say helplessly, unfaithful husband, this was one promise to his wife that he seemed sure to keep. Oh, man. And that, of course, was Fire and Fury, or just a very small piece of it. I'd like to play more of it later on once I find where I put this sound file so that I can edit it down to fit into my uh, little show here. Um, but anyway, that was, of course, Fire and Fury by Michael Wolf, who was imitated on Saturday Night Live. You might might remember this. Imitated on Saturday Night Live by Fred Armisen. And many of you will know who Fred Armisen is. He is a terrific uh, SNL actor and all-around actor as well. He mostly does, I've never seen him do anything 
terribly serious. Mostly it's comedy, but um, he's really great if you could see more of him. And by the way, before I close, Fire and Fury is just the first of what is possibly going to be many, many books about this horrible excuse for a world leader, Donald Trump. Um, you're probably going to hear about more. You're probably going to buy some more. There might be audiobooks, uh, hopefully one that I can do uh, about, uh, about him and his, uh, his uh, horrible sense of leadership. But uh, definitely uh, keep your eyes and ears open for that happening. And that should do it for this episode. If you enjoyed your visit today, please tell your friends and have them tell their friends. If you have uh, any questions or comments, you can email me at tomreadsyourstory at yahoo.com or you can call and leave a message to 929-260-1952. That's 929-260-1952, and I will answer them in an upcoming podcast. So, as always, thanks, Anchor.fm, for the chance to have an ongoing podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Until next time, stay safe and take care. For more information on Tom's availability for your e-learning, commercial, audiobook, or video project, visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tom Reads Your Story.